look, there's really no other way for me to say it. You're missing out. If you're not playing this, you're missing out. It's the free contests on the NBC Sports Predictor app. They've already handed out over $3 million in cash prizes, and there are tens of thousands more up for grabs this and every week. So get in on the action right now with the NBC Sports Predictor app powered by PointsBet. For the biggest names in sports talk, watch the NBC Sports Channel every weekday on Peacock. Featuring pro football talk, the Dan Patrick Show, the Ritz Eisen Show, and more. Streaming live for free on PeacockTV.com slash NBC Sports. Hello, I'm Peter King. Welcome to the MMQB podcast with Peter King, where I take you inside the minds of the biggest influencers in the NFL. This week, a conversation with Carl Banks, the former Pro Bowl New York Giants linebacker, and now the radio voice on a week of mayhem in the life of the New York Giants. And Thomas George, the author of a very smart new book called Blitzed, why NFL teams gamble on starting rookie quarterbacks on how exactly to tell when a quarterback's going to succeed and when he's going to fail. But first, a few thoughts on what many of you saw Monday night in the Pittsburgh-Cincinnati game, a vicious game between the two AFC North teams. And just a, you know, just a few thoughts about not only this game, but on the future of football. You know, on Sunday in Week 13, Rob Gronkowski of the New England Patriots delivered a forearm shiver to an unsuspecting Tredavious White of the Buffalo Bills while he was laying on the ground. He concussed Tredavious White on that play with this gratuitous shot and was suspended for one game by the National Football League. And I thought it was very interesting that Rob Gronkowski actually had the temerity to appeal the suspension. That in this day and age in football, to think that if you take a shot at a player who is totally defenseless, when there's so much concern about concussions, about CTE, about brain trauma, Rob Gronkowski concussed Tredavious White with a blow that was not in the game. He did it outside the game. And then he appealed it. I mean, who is advising Rob Gronkowski exactly? Anyway, uh, so we get to Monday night. And normally, I'll tell you what my what I do on Monday nights. I normally go to sleep because, uh, honestly, I don't sleep very much on Sunday night, may get to bed at 4.30 or 5 o'clock. So I'm pretty wiped out by the end of the day Monday. But in this particular Monday, I was up going to be up late writing a column about what the New York Giants should do now. Um, and we discussed that in a little while with Carl Banks right on this podcast. But so I had the game on and we see the Ryan Shazier play where uh, he gets uh, a spinal cord injury and is laying on the field. And you don't really know how serious it is, but it looks extremely serious. So at that time, uh, I'm watching it. And I'm just saying, oh, my gosh. So now I'm going to be in all night until I find out something about Ryan Shazier. And as the game goes on, a normally chippy game between the Bengals and the Steelers is normally chippy. And it is chippy on this particular night. In fact, it's terrible. And there's one play where the biggest villain uh, 
on the Cincinnati Bengals, at least according to the Pittsburgh Steelers, is linebacker Vontez Perfect. Juju Smith-Schuster basically decletes uh, Vontez Perfect on a block and then stands over him and taunts him. Not only is one play terrible, but the next play is, I mean, taunting a guy when your own player is laying in the hospital a few miles away and you have no idea if he's ever going to walk again. I, I mean, I just am thinking to myself, so I sent out a few tweets and and a bunch of people wrote back and they, they were shaken as well as I was and they're wondering about the future of football. And I said, I don't know how if you're a parent and watch this game and watch some of the developments in football. I really don't. I don't know how if you're a parent, you don't think Man, the only thing I'm going to let my kid do is play flag football. I don't want him to play tackle football. Look at this. So I, I just, the moral of this story, in my opinion, is that it's the players who have to make a change in this. The NFL can suspend guys. They, they suspended two players in this game uh, out of the Cincinnati-Pittsburgh game. They can suspend guys. They can find guys. They can make new rules. They can do all this. But every time the Bengals and the Steelers play, there's more of this gratuitous crap that is hurting this game badly. And time and time again, you hear, hey, you don't like this game? Go watch Tiddlywinks or go do something else. No, I love this game. I, I, I do like this game. And I'm not willing to just sit back and, and, and watch guys who can't control themselves do stupid things like uh you know like what happened in the Cincinnati game and like what Rob Gronkowski did on Sunday they have to be called out they have to be monitored they have to be constantly criticized and people have to know that this is not the future of professional football period that's it and now my conversation with former giant great and current giant radio voice Carl Banks. Back on the MMQB podcast with Peter King. I'm joined now by Carl Banks. And I wanted to have Carl on. He's obviously the uh, former Pro Bowl linebacker of the New York Giants. And now the radio voice uh, of the team is is extremely close to the players uh, and the coaches on this team in the front office. And Look, I covered the Giants for four years in the 80s, and Carl Banks was a huge, huge presence in that team. Uh, one of the classic, in my opinion, one of the truly great Giants of all time. And Carl, I'm happy you're able to join me and uh, spread a little enlightenment on what has been a real loony week. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, Peter, it has been uh, a bit nuts. Um, and, and I think... You know, everyone was shocked at the decision to uh, replace Eli Manning, and I think it was probably more shocking because of where they were in the season, number one. Um, number two, understanding that Eli Manning was still there and still is their best chance to win given uh, the tools that any quarterback has to work with. And so it just became a little nutty, and then it just kind of – went off the rails with the reaction, uh, the way the messaging went out from owner to GM to coach and then to player, and then 
owner says, not quite the way I wanted it. So it became a hot mess. And the interesting part about it for me is that, you know, you had a coach who got a, a vote of confidence from his owner and he wasn't going to make a decision on him. And yet you see a coach that says, I'll just unplug a legacy just so I can tinker around with um, not even my rookie quarterback. I'm going to do it with a guy that I already know what he can do. And I think, you know, you have to have some level of sensitivity when you're making changes for the sake of change and understand who you're pulling and what you're pulling him from. And if you're unplugging a legacy that's closely tied to the organization. I, I, I'll just say this. I And I wrote this uh, when the Eli thing happened. I actually would have done the exact same thing with one exception. Um, I would have started, uh, I would have started to get ready for this um, a couple of weeks ago uh, yeah. by, by playing uh, Davis Webb a little bit as not just exclusively the scout team quarterback. Um, and I would have gotten him ready to play so that for the last X number of weeks, whatever it was, uh, he could have played. I, I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I understand the absolute love for Eli Manning. Uh, I have incredible admiration for him myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also know that sentiment doesn't win in the NFL. And whether McAdoo is going to be back or not, to me, the only thing that could be accomplished in the last month of the season was in getting, um, you know, in knowing going into draft day, whether you've got a phenom or whether you've got a guy who you don't really know or whatever, but just get some clarity about Davis Webb. And sure. I, you know, that's that's the reason why, with all due Peter, respect I, I to this streak, it. I would have played no, no, him. No, I, I get that. And I don't necessarily disagree with you there. And, I, you know, in that same article you wrote uh, something uh, from the Harbaugh brothers, I believe it, and they said there's no right way to make a change at mm-hmm. that, uh, of that significance. But I will say that there is a wrong way to make a change. It may not yeah. be a right way, but that, that was a wrong way because you have to have a transition plan in place. Um, and you'll see it. And you think this was a seat of the pants deal by McAdoo, obviously. It felt, it felt that way. Yeah, and right. the, way, um, the way Eli articulated it, it certainly was. Um, you won't see that happen in New England. You won't see it happen in New Orleans. Um, and, you know, the, these people that revere their quarterbacks, when the time comes, everybody knows this is part of the game. You know, the hard decisions, the hard conversations you have to have. But there is a, there has to be a transition plan in place. You just, I mean, you just pull the plug and say, okay, this is where I'm going to go. And you have to consider a lot of things. And I don't disagree with getting Webb ready to play. I don't even disagree with um, the fact that if you think someone else gives you a better chance, but do it the right way. I mean, I think he's earned that right. It's not, you know, you're not changing a linebacker here. You know right. what I mean? You're, it's, it is a organizational shift. You are officially sending the organization in a different direction. And, you know, shame on any coach who has waited until you're two and nine to evaluate your talent. I mean, there's when you have players in waiting, just my opinion and some of my experience around some very smart coaches, they start to create scenarios in practice to find out what they have. 
you know, um, in a two and nine season with a broken offensive line and limited skill position players, what do you really find out if he can run a fire drill? I don't know what you can really find out. I can I know that you can find out more than you know without playing him. And that's why I thought he should have played. Um, well, and, and Peter, I, like I said, I don't disagree with you. But like I said, there's a wrong way to do it. And I think they achieved that. But, um, you know, most smart coaches who are developing a player, and obviously it's a unique position to be in, picking in the top four in the draft. So you have to be sure uh, of what you, what you have. But if, like I said, if you're waiting until – now and you have yeah. you didn't learn anything from preseason then shame on you right carl um i want to ask you i i'm I, i'm curious a lot because you actually played for ray hanley um toward the end of your years with the giants and at first i didn't want to see this but i might see it this way now do you think Ben McAdoo ultimately is Ray Hanley 2.0? Wow. Well, I guess if we factor in the evolution of the game and, and people's knowledge of it, it very well could be. And I, you know, I was a big supporter of um, Coach McAdoo. I was never, you know, from the minute, from the word go, we Ray Hanley had no one on that team that was a big supporter of his because he alienated everyone. I thought how um, did he alienate people? Refresh my memory. That was well, 90, I mean, he, 91 and ninety two, I believe. Yeah, he wanted to be everything that he wanted to be anti everything that we were. Yeah, you know, um, he brought in a defensive staff that decided that we were no good. Literally, made us feel like we weren't any good, and we had players that knew better, and they were unsound schemes and systems and Ray had very little people skills I mean um, he just didn't endear himself to anyone and didn't care the difference I think and maybe like I said with time as things have evolved um, Ben is a smart guy he understands football I think Ray understood football but Ben had a way with his players I think they liked him I think they liked playing for him um, I just don't think he was very communicable in some of the way he wanted to do things. You know, um, the way he disciplined in some areas and he didn't in others. And he got to a point where um, he had players that didn't want to play in some instances. There are a few. Um, I won't call names, but there are a few. Um, but it, it just didn't seem like the attention to detail from one team that went to the playoff to the team that took the field this year, they took a step back, and I don't think he knew how to write the ship. Um, I don't think he knew how to coach his coaches, mm-hmm. you know, because you have one area of your football team, your defensive backfield, that it seemed to be where all the problems were coming from, and you got to coach a coach on, on how to get that thing fixed. Um, that's all part of coaching. You so, know what I also I think, and you would you would know this, having been on teams that were homegrown and mm-hmm. having been on teams that were kind of a bit more rent-a-player, okay? Sure. Like, you would know this. I, when I look at the Giants, like right now, I said, who are the real Giants on this team? Like, when I covered the Giants, 
you know, they benched him. <laughs> yeah, okay, all right, that's a good one. But 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 I mean, when you look at the guys who are playing, even including Eli, okay, Jason Pierre-Paul, he's kind of a real giant. You know, he yeah. he kind of bleeds it. Justin Pugh, he kind of bleeds it. I really yeah. am starting to think that Landon Collins kind of bleeds it. Yeah. But but then you see what, in my opinion, are a large number of renta players. And and like in your day, and I'm I'm not saying, oh boy, football was great back then, it stinks now. I don't mean that. But mm-hmm. in your day, there was really a uh it, it was an asset to be developed by the Giants to have to have come up with the Giants to understand to this region what the Giants meant sure. you know you come in and 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 it's and it's Sims and it's Benson and it's Carl Nelson and sure. it's Gary Reasons and it's Mark Collins you guys were Giants right and and so, I and, and I and and, it, and this team in my opinion has lost that Okay, so it's pretty simple to um, explain that. What you have is the evolution of the game, the advent of free agency, right? But when you have drafted players who are either not on your team, not making a contribution on your team, those are your giants. You rent to supplement. Yeah. You draft to build. And when you have players that you draft that never made a contribution, right? That kills the core foundation of what you have. And then, yes, you you rent players, you rent higher guns, and what comes with them are the reasons they were available. That's a great point. And the reason, so, um, so you have a mix, and if you're not strong-minded enough as a coach, it's like being a coach of a very young team. You know you have to be the leader of that group until you get, you know, these players mature a bit. So um, when you get those types of players and you don't have anything that you you drafted and you kept and developed, then this is what you get. I did a, a little graphic, a, a little chart uh, about the Jerry Reese drafts, and this is not to pick on him because he's had some very good moments in the draft room. But the last – seven or eight years other than 2014 really you know the Beckham draft where there are still several guys from that team contributing but you take 2009 to 2013 those would be the guys who right now would be your fifth through ninth year veterans the core players on your team in 2009 through 2013 those those five drafts the Giants had 38 picks Two players out of those 38 are on this team. And so when that happens, that means you got to go overpay for Janoris Jenkins. You got to go, you know, so it just it just means that that uh, that you can't develop your own guys and keep them and or they're not worth developing. And that, to me, has killed this team. You're absolutely right. And that's where. Your Giants are. They're lost in the wash right now. Um, And then when you have a philosophical difference with, you know, what what it means to, you know, to have your system as to opposed to being able to build and develop your players while instituting your your system – it, it all becomes kind of a look like you you have all temps working for you. I mean, you have a um, 
you have a coach who, and I mean, like I said, I think he's a smart guy, but in hindsight, you know, his stubbornness, his inability to be flexible given the personnel he has, I don't think that endeared him with ownership, and it certainly didn't help the rate of success that he could have. I mean, when you lose a position group and you you got to look at your strengths. You just can't say, I'm going to just keep running slants no matter who's there. you got to find out what's working for you and put it in place because when you can't adapt to what your personnel allows you to do, then you're setting yourself up for failure. And unfortunately, and, and I think it, it, it falls on a lot of these guys with this West Coast offense mentality. And you know, I'll argue with anyone that Andy Reid is probably the most successful um, West Coast guy outside of Bill Walsh, but he hasn't won a Super Bowl, and he didn't really get to one until he had a dynamic receiver, and he had a thousand yards in rushing. Yeah, you know, a lot of these guys don't even believe in rushing the football. Yeah. Uh, finishing up with Carl Banks. So, Carl, I'm going to take you in a direction that you have no idea that I'm going in, but. This is, I'm going to tell the listeners right now something that I bet zero of the listeners, no matter how ardent a New York Giants fan they might be or an NFL fan, but I'm going to tell them something about you right now. You played in the final game that Bill Belichick and Nick Saban coached together in 1995 or January 95 in the playoffs. Cleveland Browns with Belichick as the head coach, Nick Saban as the defensive coordinator, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but you played the New England Patriots in yep. Foxborough, right? And, yep. lo- and lost the game, and the coach of the New England Patriots was Bill Parcells. That is correct. Now that is an incredible, weird, crazy, whatever <laughs> thing that... Yes. that that I that I find I find stunning, but so a, what do you remember about playing for Saban? Um, now, you know the interesting thing about Nick Saban. What I remember about him is the same thing I remembered about him my freshman year at Michigan State. Wow, he had yeah. just come over as a GA from Ohio State, and they had one of the best defensive backfields in, in football, uh, Todd Schell and uh, Vince Skillings and those guys. But um, he came in the door at Michigan State screaming. He was a screamer, you know, attention to detail guy at a very young age. And I think from the minute I met him as a, a freshman to the time I had him in Cleveland, um, and, and, and to this day, he is the same guy, driven, <laughs> attention to detail, and a hell of a racquetball player. I don't know if he's still playing racquetball now, but he's a legendary racquetball player. And, uh, you know, I, I just – what's weird about that is after that game, he left to go coach Michigan State. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a funny little road of life. Yeah. Uh, so, last thing, if you have one piece of advice, John Mara calls you and says, Carl, I want your advice. What should I do? All right, well, I'm going to tell him he needs to get a, a, a general manager who's a grinder, a football guy. Um, don't need, he's got enough suits. He's got enough executives. 
he needs a football guy uh, and a coach. Uh, I would recommend not a West Coast offense guy. Get a guy who's flexible with personnel who understands how to adapt to injury, how to adapt to personnel loss and changes in your strengths. Um, because he, they need to get back to football now. It's not, um, it's not about what's, what's in, in vogue. You've got to get football players. You've got to build personnel, uh, something that is, has been lost. Let's be honest. I mean, it's, it's, and picking players is not an exact science, right? But, um, and, and most GMs miss more than they hit. But you've got to be able to have some core foundation players, that you can look back four years later and be like, okay, we're resigning this guy because he's good for us. You need that, and that's what I would tell John. Don't, I mean, don't go with what's in what's in vogue. Get a grinder, get a guy, a football guy, a real football guy at general manager. Um, you can put a suit on him, and if he can talk football, that's all people should want to hear anyway. And as a coach, you got to get a coach who's adaptable. Carl Banks. Long-time broadcaster, and before that, um, a darn good football player for the New York Giants, for Washington and Cleveland. I really appreciate you joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me. This was fun. This is the MMQB Podcast. Podcast. State Farm knows that for football fans, your car and home are more than just stuff. They're some of your most valuable possessions. The things you've worked hard for and have made a lifetime of memories with. Whether it's the truck that gets you to every tailgate or the place where you watch your favorite team with your favorite people. But life can be a real tough opponent. That's why when it comes to finding the right home and auto insurance, you need a strong defense. A seasoned pro like State Farm. They understand it's more than just a car or a house. So why not give it the protection it deserves? It's just one more way State Farm is here to help life go right. See how they can help you by talking to a State Farm agent today. And now my conversation with author Thomas George. Back on the MMQB podcast with Peter King, here with a longtime friend and longtime NFL journalist, Thomas George, uh, who's written a book called Blitzed. And one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to him is just because... This year, as in every year, coaches get hired and fired. General managers get hired and fired uh, because of how young quarterbacks play and what happens when you draft a young quarterback. Not only is that happening right now in the NFL, but it's going to happen again in April when four or five teams take the leap and take the next class of quarterbacks, the Baker Mayfields, of the world. And so I wanted to have Thomas on because he, this was, I I think, a really, really clever idea for a book and very well executed. I've read the book and it's very well executed because it talks about the massive problems that teams have in trying to identify who the good young quarterbacks are going to be and try to identify as importantly, what are the factors that might make them bust? And so, uh, Thomas, first, thanks a lot for, for, for joining me. And I'll start by asking you whether, in your mind, you came to any final conclusions 
that if you were dropped into a general manager's chair tomorrow, what you would look for when you look for a quarterback? Well, great to be here, Peter. And uh, I tell you, that's a great place to start because the more people that I talk to who've been successful, you know, it's very interesting in this league, the people who are successful and the people who are not. There is a pattern there. It isn't all by accident. There are reasons why the Cleveland Browns are still looking for the franchise quarterback and why uh, the Patriots have it and why other teams who've been more consistent have it. Uh, but the one thing that seems to stand out, and, and also while we're on Cleveland, you know, Carson Wentz sitting there right there for them. Jared Goff sitting right there for them. Deshaun Watson. I mean, they've just passed on and on and on. So many good guys. You know what yeah. I'm saying? And so, but the one thing that I think uh, that stands out the most, and there are a lot of factors in this, but the one thing that continually stood out to me was the toughness. Is, is this guy going to get up when he's knocked down? And is he going to bounce back when he throws five picks? You know, you have got to have somebody who's in it for the long haul, who has that type of mental makeup, physical makeup, where they are going to bounce back in adversity because it is coming. Reverse is coming. Are they going to be able to handle it? So I, I'm, you, you mentioned Goff and Wentz, and what's, what really interests me is that if we go back, we're sitting here in December now, if you go back to August of this year, and as much as you and I follow the sport and cover the sport, I would bet that both of us would have said, we'll take Jameis Winston and Marcus Mariota as a daily double over Jared Goff and Carson Wentz. First of all, we had no idea what to expect about Goff, mm -hmm. okay, because he had such a crummy year as a rookie. And Wentz showed a lot of promise, but he had some rough spots late in the year too. And I was convinced that Mariota, this was his coming out party this year. And also Wentz was really going to, and I'm sorry, Winston was really going to play well. So here we are in the middle of December now, and you're looking at a thing where I think anybody who would watch the game would say, essentially, I'll take Wentz and Goff <laughs> over Winston and Mariota. So you spent time studying very closely Jared Goff. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I, I, I want to know in your mind, what happened between January 1, when Jeff Fisher was booted out the door, and let's say Labor Day of this year, when Sean McVay comes in and has a chance to get his claws into Jared Goff. I'll step back a, a step to Carson Wentz first and say, I wrote in the book, and I think we had devoted an entire chapter to Carson Wentz, sort of laying the foundation of what we're seeing with him now. There were a lot of people that I talked to, people that I really have great respect for, Dick Vermeil at the top of the list, who felt like Carson Wentz was going to take off. And when you just watch him, his stature, his size, his presence, his ability, the story that Jeffrey Lurie told me about a major concert that was being held at the stadium, and he invited all the quarterbacks to come up and, and watch it with him. Uh, and Wentz as a rookie, uh, before he having, even playing his first game, uh, pulls Jeffrey aside and very politely says, uh, sir, I don't think I should go to that. I haven't done anything to earn that type of privilege to go 
to be in your box to watch the concert, and that's not good for my teammates. Wow. I mean, that's pretty this, good. Yeah. This is the this is who you're dealing with there. Not only the talent, but the makeup of him. So uh, we couldn't have predicted golf would be where he was, but I did think uh, Wentz was going to be and will be uh, what he looks like he is. And so if I would choose it, because Wentz, I think, is all that good, I might have been willing to take my chances with uh, what golf may be on the basis of what we think Wentz is. As far as Jared is concerned, he is a prime example of the importance uh, beyond the toughness of the quarterback. Who's in the quarterback room with him? Who's coaching him? Yeah. Who's designing the offense? Who's calling the plays? It's one of the reasons you know? why I think Jeff Fisher and that staff, they're going to have a hard time getting a job because you look at how poorly golf played last year. And then you look at the change in coaching, and all of a sudden he looks like one of the best quarterbacks in the league. Look, I've known Jeff Fisher for a long time. I really like Jeff Fisher. Absolutely. But it's it's kind of an indictment of his offensive staff, really. It really was. And we're talking, uh, I think it was Rob Boris and yeah. Chris Winkie and some other guys. I mean, I think he could get another job. He'd just have to find a Sean McVay-like coach to come along with him and run the offense. And there's not a whole lot of those around, I don't think. But that's going to be the key. You've got to get the right guy with that quarterback in terms of the tutorage and in terms of the uh, – how you get him to view the game um, and and all of the time you're spending with him. You've got to have the right coach and the right quarterback, uh, quarterbacks around him, veteran quarterbacks in that quarterback room. There's a whole chapter of this book about the quarterback room. I had no idea that How I would be walking How sacrosanct it was. Yeah. I had no idea. It wasn't even a thought on my mind. What's or radar so interesting to write about that you, when you wrote about that, I thought of it when I was coming over here today because – Eli Manning and uh, Geno Smith and Davis Webb. So the interesting thing about their room is that Eli sort of was always the king of the room because he's the player. And one of the things I noticed that was said during the week is that Eli made a very, very interesting point when he was the backup of making sure that Geno knew that, okay, you're, you're, the, you're the guy now. You, you know, not not to basically go in there and say, hey, you know, stay in your place. But Eli gave up his position of real authority in that room when he wasn't playing. And so Huge. I thought I thought of your I thought of that chapter when uh, when I heard that. Huge. And in that chapter, also Terry Robisky, the offensive coordinator of the Titans, even talks about before entering the room, if the quarterbacks are in there with the quarterback coach or whatever, he knocks. Wow. That's, That's how much yeah. reverence goes. You're the offensive quarterback. You think you can walk in, you know, into your quarterback room at any time, but he knocks and asks permission to come in. Uh, it's a room where very few people go into. It's the head coach, maybe not that much. Mm-hmm. The offensive coordinator, the quarterback coach, the quarterbacks. That's it. Why do you think Sean Mc- has Sean McVay? been so impactful early on with Jared Goff? Well, that goes right back to, I guess, where I was going and, yeah. and uh, uh, with that question you asked me earlier, and that is, spend five minutes with Sean McVay. You know, it doesn't even have to be 10, five, four. Uh, the energy, the uh, knowledge, uh, his communication skills, uh, his uh, the, the authentic manner in which he delivered it, and this is really key. You know, players uh, really know 
uh, when someone is being authentic and real with them. And these young men today are looking for that more than ever. It's always been a part of the NFL game, but you've got to be able to reach the mind and the heart before you can reach the talent. And 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 today in today's game, and Sean McVay is really well schooled uh, in, and I think it's most of it is just natural in how he dispenses his information and the relationships that he builds. And so he's a, a knowledgeable guy who's cutting edge, who's top of the line in terms of the communication. It's clear, it's direct. And, you know, I had someone in the Redskins front office tell me, which is also in the book, about everybody thinks that Sean has to go to the Rams and he has to prove himself to the Rams and he has to prove himself to Jared. And they go, "Uh uh-uh, Sean is going to go in there and he's going to lay it out for Jared and say, you know, this is the way it's going to be and this is what I'm looking for. And if he can't do it, we're going to find us another quarterback who can. He's not going to be afraid to say, "Uh, not going to work and let's go, as you can see. Jared had more of what it took than people thought, and Sean and the marriage of the two is really something special. With Thomas George, author of the book Blitzed, um, Thomas, you and I have both covered this game for over 30 years, and so I would probably go into a book like that with some preconceived notions. And you always find when you have preconceived notions, a bunch of them get dashed as you go through the research. But I wonder, of all the things, you had some very, very interesting stuff from Dick Vermeil about how devastated an organization can be when the quarterback doesn't work out. It isn't like he's one of 53. He is the king of the mountain, and if he fails, then everybody, it's like everybody, oh my God, this is terrible. But I, I just wonder, what what's what's another thing that you found out in the in your long research about what makes young quarterbacks succeed or fail that kind of surprised you that you maybe weren't expecting i think it's the the acceptance and then the ability to be able to deal with being the face of the franchise and the social media aspects that come with it and all of that pressure, what to do with it. You know, I think it's just there and it's a given, but everybody seems to handle it a little bit different way with the common thread being you're either good at it or you're not. You either get caught out there, you know, in situations that are really, really embarrassing or you just don't hear a peep, you know, from that player off the field with those type of issues. Embracing being the face of the franchise and and, and that whole level of responsibility and pressure that comes with that, that is an amazing thing. Even for a quarterback who has been successful in college, you know, Baker Mayfield and, and Rosen and, and Darnold, they, they, they may have all thought they've experienced big-time football, but when they leave from their, their places in college and they come to the NFL city and they become the face of the franchise and how they either embrace that or navigate, even more importantly, uh, that role. Uh, I was just blown away by how it affected Achilles Smith as opposed to how it affected uh, David Carr. Or, or, or hey, let's, bring up, let's bring up Carson Wentz because I believed – that one of the big factors, no matter how cool he was at the scouting combine, no matter how natural he was and good in every setting, we're talking about going from Bismarck, Bismarck, North Dakota, 
to the biggest cauldron in the NFL, Philadelphia, South Philly, mm. you know, uh, you know, Silver Linings Playbook. There's fights in the parking lot all the time. There's that, you know, it's it's insane there. Mm-hmm. And 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 his success early on, he's told me these three words twice now. When I've asked him this I, I, after uh, the game against Washington Monday Night Football, I recorded him for this podcast, and I basically said, "Man, you you dissected." Washington, Monday Night Football, national TV. You guys are the hottest team in football. It is. You're from Bismarck, North Dakota. What happened? Why? And he said, it's just football. Mm -hmm. And that is what I have so much admiration for with him Mm -hmm. because he lets all the noise just like roll right off his back. Here's also what he's very good at too. Uh, And Jeffrey Lurie has talked to me about this. And... uh, the coaching staff has talked about this as well. They did go in last year with the idea that he was going to play behind Sam Bradford, but from the first practice to the second one to the third one, they were all looking at each other and going, "Wow, he's picking this up pretty, you know, pretty good here." You know, and then the, the second, third week, and the fourth week, and they're like, "You know, he could play right now." You know, really, and and so he he ends up playing, you know, right away. I wonder what happened if they don't trade Bradford to Minnesota. Oh wow! What, what, what do you think? I think Bradford still would have started, but it would have been a short leash. I yeah. think they really felt like at this some is point the best during player. the year. Do you think oh, if Bradford had been healthy? You think that Wentz would have would have gotten a gig at some point in 2016? It depends on if they were like six and two or two and six. Yeah. It totally depends on the results, but I don't think they would have hesitated. Yeah, even had Bradford been there to put this guy kid in because he was ready and he's he's sort of. Can I that. ask you? I got to ask you one other question about this season. Please explain Case Keenum to me. Oh wow! How in the world do you explain a guy who, with the hot breath of Teddy Bridgewater down his back? In the four weeks that Teddy Bridgewater, first four weeks that Teddy Bridgewater has been back, Case Keenum's got a passer rating of 124, and he's completed 81% of his passes. I, I, I mean, you have any theory amazing. on Case Keenum? I, have, I do have amazing. a thought about that. Let me finish this thought about yeah. Carson Wentz. Um, so he, he, he gets through all of last year. He's, he's, he's coming into this year. And I think the one thread last year and this year is this. His level of intelligence and his his ability to survey the room, survey the landscape. He, I think, surveyed what Philadelphia is, all the things that you described, and he just started hitting the notes because he understood what they want to hear, what they need to hear, and how to give it to them. Yep. So not only on the field, but off the field. Mm-hmm. I don't think anything that he said about how I fit here and this place is for me. And, you know, you go back and you look at some of the notes that he's hitting. He's hit all the notes that an Eagles quarterback should hit to mm-hmm. bond with Philadelphia. Right. Case Keenum, I saw the Vikings play the Lions uh, Thanksgiving Day in Detroit. And so I'm in the locker room after the game. Of course, he played really well, ran for a touchdown, you know, uh, read. Uh, option, you know, yeah. you don't expect Case Keenum running up, but he didn't run it well, uh, and and threw some bullets along the way. He's in the locker room after the game, and he's one locker over from Stefan Diggs, and they are having this back and forth intense exchange about when the route should be uh, broken off and when the route should be extended, yeah. and what each of them saw and and how they're going to handle that. And it was almost like an argument 
as much as it was a discussion of clarity and growth. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought, wow, you know, I left that conversation thinking, wow, Case Kenan can give it as well as he could receive it. I mean, yeah. he's, and I think this is part of why he's been successful. He's he's playing at a high level, but he's also willing to get his hands dirty and grimy and get in there and not back down from any type of challenge. Right. And again, that's part of what you're all looking for in your quarterback. Finishing up with Thomas George. So I think probably your book got the most attention it got with the Mike Martz controversy. And um, you you had, and you're going to refresh me, or you're going to correct me if I'm wrong, you had a 48-minute conversation Correct. with Mike Martz for this book. And Mike Martz is a mad scientist yes, of quarterbacks. And Mike Martz was highly critical of the choice of Sean McVay. Mm -hmm. Everybody remembers the quotes. Mm -hmm. So... Mike Martz then says, I never said that, which honestly, when I heard that, I'm going to say, hey, he was caught. What's he going to say? But how did you respond to that? And did you ever have any back and forth with Mike about it? I've known Mike Martz for more than 20 years, and I've seen him at many different places, you know, in Chicago with the Rams, with Vermeil, uh, on his own as the head coach. Um and and I've and if you follow Mike Marks like I have and work with him like I have, you know that he is an off the cuff. <laughs> no question about it. <laughs> you know, yeah. Mike is going to tell you what he thinks, and most of it is pretty entertaining. I mean, it's really interesting stuff. Yeah. And and he also is a very very uh, prideful uh, guy with a lot of ego. Yeah, because he thinks you know he. His offense and his teaching and the way he calls it and the way he runs it is the way it should be done. A lot of these people out here don't know what they're doing, you know, as it relates to that. So that's kind of his M.O. And in different ways, he said things like that uh, throughout the course of his interval experience. I think this simply was a situation where he said what he said and felt what he felt about the Rams hiring this whippersnapper of a coach uh, when he's available. And when others are available, uh, uh, the Rams who let him go in a situation where he felt like he didn't deserve it. Uh, may have been a little part of that, too. Some feelings there. Uh, but the thing about that, Peter, is he was not alone. He's the one who stepped out and said, and it. said it. But, yeah. a, lot but a lot of people, people around this league were like, yeah. you know, some assistant coaches who've been in like 10 years, 20 years, 30 years are like going, you know, where did this guy come from? Don't he you gets find a shot people like are this. always angry when the young guy with without experience, oh. without enough experience gets in? Same oh, thing happened with John Lynch and the Niners. Crossed. Oh, yeah. I heard it too, yeah. Yeah. right there. So I think it was something that he said and meant in April, and then once it came out in print in August, he was like, "Oh, watch I, I feel That's that way, exactly. but I probably shouldn't That's have said exactly it." Exactly the way I thought. <laughs> Thomas George, author of the book Blitzed. There's it, it's there's a reason why we're having him on in December. This is one heck of a gift for your NFL nerd friend or husband or wife. Uh, for the holidays. So I urge you strongly to get it. Uh, Thomas, I really appreciate you joining me on the podcast. Just great to be here. Thank you, Peter. Thanks to my guests, Carl Banks of the New York Giants and Thomas George, author of the book Blitz. If you enjoyed these conversations, be sure to listen and subscribe to the other great episodes in the MMQB series, such as my conversations with Adam Schefter, Drew Brees, and Tom Brady. You can find these on the MMQB.com, on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, 
or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. You can also hear the MMQB podcast with Peter King on Sirius XM Radio every Saturday morning at 7 Eastern on Mad Dog Sports Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 82. Thanks to the fine folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thanks, of course, to my sponsor, State Farm. Please support State Farm the way they support this podcast. And I'll see you next week.